do me a favor and open up your Bibles or the Bible that's in the pew to the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. And in the pew Bible, that's on page 725. As John said, and I can't believe it, maybe it's the byproduct of being gone for two weeks, but we're drawn near to Holy Week, the culmination of the Lenten season. And we've been taking these last few weeks to look at close encounters with Jesus as they're recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And today, as you're turning to Luke chapter 10, we come to a close encounter with Jesus that we know all too well. In fact, I want to say that we may have become too familiar with this brief but insightful story. And I say this because in the history of the church, we have reduced the people in this passage to stereotypes, almost to the point of turning this story into something more like a parable rather than an actual real-life encounter with Christ. And once we read it together, I think you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. You might, in just a moment, find yourself automatically classifying how this story relates to you or really doesn't have anything to say to you at all if you're a guy. Believe me when I tell you, and I'll make the case in a second, we have tended to look at this encounter all wrong. And as a result, we have tended to miss the point of what Jesus is trying to teach us here. So without any further ado, from the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38, let us hear the word of the Lord. Luke writes, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let me set the scene for you. Jesus and his disciples are on the move, and as they travel from place to place, they come to a woman named Martha who opens her home. Now, you might miss this, but she opens her home not just to Jesus. Remember, he's got 12 traveling companions. She opens her home to all 13 of them. So this is an incredible act of hospitality. And we also know that the village, this village that Jesus and his disciples came to was Bethany. We know this thanks to the Gospel of John, who informs us that Bethany was the hometown of this woman named Martha. And if you want some context, if you can think in terms of a map, Bethany's about two miles away from Jerusalem. It's near the Mount of Olives, which we were just looking at pictures of. And Jesus apparently spent considerable time in Bethany, accepting the hospitality not only of Martha, but of her sister, as you heard, Mary, as well. All four of the Gospels reference Jesus' relationship with these two women. Together, they characterize a relationship of friendship as well as ministry support between Jesus, Mary, and Martha. Luke, however, is the only Gospel writer who preserves this story, the account of Jesus' first visit to their home. And as you heard, unfortunately, what begins as a very gracious act of hospitality quickly moves into an argument between two siblings, with Jesus seemingly caught in the middle. Martha is making all the preparations for her guests, as custom dictated. Mary is listening to Jesus teach, and as a result is not helping her sister. And Jesus, despite Martha's insistence, does not take her side. Instead, offering, as Jesus always does, a different perspective. And so the story, I don't know if you caught this, ends abruptly, just kind of cuts off with Mary 
Uh, with Martha, excuse me, exasperated and fuming while Mary is blissfully content, having been affirmed in making the better choice than her sister. And the moral of this story is, don't be a Martha, be a Mary. You've heard this one, right? If you're a woman, you've been asked to classify yourself according to the stereotypes we've reduced Martha and Mary to. And this goes all the way back to what's called the patristic era, the early church fathers, the generation after the first apostles. The question is, are you a Mary, a quiet, contemplative worshiper of Jesus, or are you a Martha, an active, busy worker for Christ? Don't be a Martha, be a Mary. And this same argument that drives this story remains unresolved still today. On one side of the church are the worker bees who throw up their hands and say, well, all that stuff that makes ministry happen, hospitality, caring for and serving others, it doesn't just happen all by itself. Somebody has to make the time, somebody has to put in the effort, plan, work, and follow through to bring it all together. And on the other side are the prayer warriors, the Bible study teachers, the worship leaders who counter with the importance of spending time devotionally with the Lord in prayer, in study, in praise. You can't forsake your quiet time. Making space for Jesus has to come first. And meanwhile, all the guys are in the other room paying no attention at all. <laughs> because we've come to believe this passage only applies to women. Jesus is talking to two women here. So this is for our wives. This is for our mothers, our aunts, our sisters, or other women. Not us guys, right? This is a gender-based argument. This is supposed to be earmarked for the annual women's retreat. I shouldn't be preaching on this at all. <laughs> at best, or perhaps for the worst, we men use this text as a way of labeling or correcting the women around us. You're being such a Martha right now. Ouch. Beloved, these dichotomies we've constructed out of Mary and Martha are false. Applying them as labels to mark people, specifically women, in the body of Christ is not helpful. In fact, it has been painful and alienating. And reading this encounter in this way has also deprived men of an opportunity to grow in their discipleship in Christ. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to look at this encounter with a fresh pair of eyes and see, perhaps, what we've missed. And there's two insights that I'm going to try to share with you this morning. The first is a very brief observation that I believe offers some encouragement as well as a corrective to some of our understanding in the church. And then second, I want to give a broader insight into exactly what Jesus is trying to teach all of us, not just women, but women and men together, all of us here. So, first... I want us to notice something about Mary in this encounter, something that gets often overlooked, something that rather than alienating women, affirms and includes them in a powerful and provocative way. If you have your Bible open, and if you don't, I'll describe it for you, but if you have your Bible open, pay attention to how Luke describes Mary's posture towards Jesus. Luke writes, Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Now, maybe this doesn't seem like a big deal, but here's the thing. Sitting at the feet of a rabbi or a teacher was the posture of a disciple. If you were to turn to Acts chapter 22, and you can earmark that for later, if you were to turn to Acts chapter 22, you would read how Paul, the Apostle Paul, describes his time spent with another rabbi before Jesus came into his life. And Paul will write that he sat at the feet of Gamil. 
The NIV, if that's the translation you're using, like our Bible in front of us, will translate it this way. He sat under Gamil. It's still the same idea. To sit under the teaching of another person is to position oneself as a would-be follower, as someone who seeks to learn from and thereby emulate to others the lessons, the leadership, and the example of your master. Now here's the rub. Women in Judaism were not permitted to sit at the feet of a rabbi. It was not considered a woman's place to learn the Torah so as to teach others. In fact, a common saying of the time was that it was better for the Torah to be burned than to be put in the hands of a woman. Therefore, if you're not getting this, for Mary to sit at Jesus' feet, just as any student of a great rabbi would, was scandalous. She is acting like an equal among the male disciples. And this is considered shameless and inappropriate behavior. A little bit of food for thought, just a little sidebar, is maybe this is part of the reason Martha is upset with her sister. It's not just that Mary isn't helping her, it's that Mary doesn't know her place. But the interesting thing is, what really stands out, is Jesus not only allows this to happen, he actually commends Mary. And it's jolting. Because there's a long tradition in the time of Jesus, and it's interesting for us because there's still a long tradition today in the church of sequestering women when it comes to teaching and preaching. Much of it, as you may or may not know, coming out of select passages in Paul's letters. Today is not the appropriate time for us to go through those key passages, but what I want you to think about, to chew on, the interesting thing to me is Jesus never, ever makes such a distinction or a declaration about women in terms of discipleship. Yes, we can look at Paul, but not Jesus. Before the cultural norms of his day, in fact, that clearly and strictly defined gender boundaries when it came to discipleship, which, again, in some quarters of the church we still perpetuate today, Jesus does not distinguish. In fact, he frequently crosses the lines. And that's the first observation I want you to make, is that for Jesus... There is no difference, there is no such thing as a man's place versus a woman's place when it comes to following him as a disciple. And I think that's important. But now, the broader insight into this passage. And for that, we need to take another look at Martha. Throughout this encounter, as I say, we tend to break it down, we tend to elevate this about, be, about, being, about being. We elevate being in this versus doing. That's kind of the, the dichotomy we set up. And as a result, we perceive that what's going on here is Jesus is chiding Martha for all of her doing rather than her being. But what I want you to notice is that before this encounter, Luke records Jesus' teaching of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I don't think this is a coincidence. Because in that parable, Jesus, you might remember, commends care and service towards another person in need, underscoring the doing of our faith. Our faith in Christ is never an abstract, disembodied, or purely spiritualized thing. Our faith in Christ should always be expressed in a tangible, embodied, and active form. And beyond the parable that Jesus teaches, if we look at the whole of Scripture, this is because we do not worship a God who declares his love and grace towards us through reflections in nature. Sunsets, waterfalls, rainbows, or goosebumps and tingles that we get in a particular holy moment. No, we worship a God whose love came down and took flesh in the person of Christ and taught 
and healed and touched and ate and bled and died and rose in bodily form. We worship a God who dwells among us through the Holy Spirit and is active, prompting, leading, and getting involved in the messy details of everyday life. In other words, the incarnation means the place to find God is not in otherworldly thoughts or reflections, being in nature. It is we find God in the earthy, hands-on details of life. And this isn't this is, if we think about it, it kind of makes sense because deep down we know this, right? A parent, for example, can say, I love my child. But such love is experienced, it's evidence through more than just a feeling or even words. Loving one's child means being there when he falls, wiping the dried blood from the hurt place and helping him back up again. Loving one's child looks like a parent who rushes to her room in the middle of the night when she has a nightmare and staying awake until she falls asleep again. Our God loves us, meets us like that, in person, not just by being God, but in doing what is needed to save us, to heal us, to transform our lives. So what Martha, in what she's doing, really important, there's nothing wrong with what Martha is doing. Working and serving to provide hospitality for her guest is not wrong. If you will, Martha is just trying to be a good neighbor towards Jesus. And, and if you know anything about the culture in the Middle East, culturally in the Middle East, to have a guest in your home was to treat them with care and generosity, like one of your family. You waited on them. You offered them food. You made a concerted effort to make them feel welcome. Martha is following this custom. She's trying to be a proper host. And without Martha's efforts, there'd be no food on the table. No beds would be made ready for the night. Her acts of hospitality in this passage are not trivial or wrong. And to underscore this, if you're looking at this passage, look, nowhere in this exchange does Jesus tell Martha she ought not to be engaging in her activity. So what then is the issue here if it's not about doing versus being? If we listen carefully, there are three things that Jesus isolates for Martha and for us. And the first, if we listen carefully, is Jesus doesn't address Martha's activity. He addresses first her distraction. Martha's obstacle, in other words, is not her work or her service. It's not her doing. Martha's obstacle is her disposition in her work and her service. The word that's translated distracted here that Luke uses has the connotation in Greek of being pulled or dragged in different directions. Martha is distracted. She is disoriented and overwhelmed in all her efforts, and therefore she's unable to be focused on the presence of Jesus. And right with the first thing, we suddenly have changed things, haven't we? This doesn't become a female or a male thing anymore. It applies to us both, because male or female, we can all relate to being distracted, can't we? In our world of touch screens, text messages, and constant Googling, we sell ourselves on the belief we are becoming better and better at being able to do more and more things at the same time. We can always be on the move and yet still working. We can look up for information. We can respond to someone's communication with us. We can pay our bills or extend an evite to our next social gathering. But as many have noted, the plague of the internet age is the growing cancer of what's called continuous partial attention. 
Our screens light up and flash. Our devices demand our attention with their sounds and vibrations. And we briefly check for updates, and just like that, we lose all sense of time. As we are solicited to make comments, to identify our likes, to retweet, to repost, to pin our favorites, or to add followers. The truth is, all our devices and our convenience really don't give us the power to do more. They wield power over us by just keeping us distracted and busy from being fully present in what we are experiencing. Busyness and distraction, though, using this example, I want to make something clear. Busyness and distraction are not a technological issue. It's not about technology. Busyness and distraction is about a mindset, our internal posture towards the life we have been given. In our age of multitasking, in our culture of hectic schedules, sometimes the greatest obstacle to encountering the presence of Jesus is our habit of living lives of continuous partial attention. If we just find ourselves moving from one task to the next, constantly distracted or pulled in multiple directions, we're going to miss Jesus even if he's standing right in front of us. You know what I'm talking about? Do you, do you, you, you see, you've experienced this, whether you've observed it or participated in it. You know what I mean? We live at a time now where we can occupy the same space with a person but not be present with that person. Do you know what I'm talking about? You're in the same space, but you're not connected. And in fact, some of us, that becomes a, 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 a point of tension between us because we, we act like, well, we're close and we've spent time, but we're just occupying space. We're not connecting. Beloved, Jesus doesn't want to just occupy space with us. Through the presence of the Holy Spirit, Jesus desires to have our full attention, to transform us and the spaces we occupy. Martha doesn't have a cell phone, right? Martha doesn't have a cell phone, and yet she's missing the moment right in front of her. In seeking to practice hospitality, to open her home, to prepare a meal, she's doing a good thing. I really want to hit this hard. She's doing a necessary thing, a right thing, an act of service, and yet she is distracted. What is distracting her? Jesus tells us, and this is the second obstacle we identify, Martha is distracted by her worry. She is distracted by all her preoccupations about being a proper host. She's worried about what she is doing. And get this, she is so worried about what she is doing, she is denying herself the enjoyment of her guest, of being truly present with the one who came to take care of everything she needs. Like Martha, much of our busyness and distraction stems from the noblest of intentions. We want to provide for our family. We want to give our children every opportunity to enrich their lives. We want to serve our neighbors. And yes, we want to serve the Lord. But ironically, we tend to pursue all these good things apart from Jesus. Acting as if Jesus doesn't want all these things. As if Jesus didn't come to make these things possible for us. And beloved, when we try to do it all on our own, it doesn't take long for us to unconsciously believe and functionally live like we are all alone in whatever we're doing. And not surprisingly when that happens, when the peace of Christ's presence in our lives, the very direction, the confidence, the security we seek becomes overshadowed by our worries and our fears. We stress as we feel pulled in different directions. We become overwhelmed by all our to-do lists Without Christ at the center of our life, we try to placate, placate 
our worries and our fears by just filling up our calendars, our schedules and our agendas with stuff without any decisiveness, without any discernment of our priorities. And when we suddenly sense the need to say no in order to say yes, as we realize that there is no space in our life, no breathing room, we just tell ourselves and everyone else our life is just filled with a bunch of have-tos. We deny the truth of our choices, that we are driven by our worries and our fears rather than by our faith. Martha's worries are preventing her from experiencing the affirmation and the peace of Christ's presence in her midst. Martha doesn't have to stop what she's doing. Hear that. Martha doesn't have to stop what she's doing. She just needs to recognize Jesus is with her in what she is doing. And I don't see Jesus rebuking her here. He's not chiding her. I hear Jesus inviting her. Jesus is inviting her, communicating to Martha that her value is intrinsic to who she is as a child of God, as one loved by Christ. It is not because of the activity she busies herself doing. My friends, we're a week away from Holy Week, and when we get to Holy Week, we will remember, we'll actually say it out loud, one of the most important declarations that Jesus makes from the cross. And that's this, it is finished. It is finished. All that matters, all that is needed for our salvation, for our lives to be changed now, for our fruitfulness today, for us to be secure, not just for eternity, but in this present moment, has been taken care of. It is finished. Do we believe this? Do we trust this? Or are we still living the lie that it's all up to us? That by worrying, we can add an extra hour to our life. That we could possibly improve on what Jesus has already done, what Jesus is doing for us. Are we falling into the temptation of placating our worries and our fears by measuring our worth in how busy we are? by defining our identity in how much we accomplish or by how well we meet the expectations of others. You know, as Protestants, you probably have heard this if you've been in the Protestant church long enough, we have a buzzword that we get very, very, very anxious about. We do not want to engage in works-based righteousness, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? We're about grace. We're not about works. We're not about works-based righteousness. But here's the thing that we miss as Protestants. Works-based righteousness, that somehow what we do earns our right place with God. Works-based righteousness isn't just believing our works will get us into heaven later. Works-based righteousness is also living now as if all our work, what we do, more than what Jesus has done and continues to do, will save and better our lives now. My friends, we are sort of have this... <laughs> uh, you know, split personality. We love talking about grace when it comes to when we're dead, when we're going to pass from this life into the next, going to heaven, being forgiven. But grace is absent in our lives now. We run around as if we're constantly having to pay off a debt or someone else owes us a debt. But Christ in the midst of our relentless pursuit of productivity, in the throes of our worries and our stress, Jesus encounters us like Martha. He invites us, as he does Martha, to listen to his words, to follow his lead, to rely on his work, to remember he is the one who gives us life. 
that he is the one where our identity and our worth come from. And that means we don't have to worry if we are perceived as important by others. We don't need to stress about being needed or wanted by anyone. We can stop chasing the accolades, the approval, the paycheck, the rewards. We can be still and know in whatever happens, in whatever we do or don't do, we are secure. We are valued because we are children of God. Beloved, when we allow ourselves to become distracted, when our priorities and our work are driven by our worries, when we don't have some vision of what God is doing, when we lack the word of God in our lives, then whatever we're doing, even if it's in the name of Jesus, if we can't see or sense Christ in it, then we're going to end up likely serving or offering ourselves in a way that will become devoid of love and joy, that will deplete and exhaust us until we finally burn out and turn resentful and bitter towards others. And that's the third obstacle, resentment. If you have those Bibles open and it's not that long a passage, you can remember it. But do you see, do you hear the resentment in this encounter? Martha, through her distraction because of her worries, fosters resentment. And as a result, she not only denies herself from experiencing Christ, she actually undercuts her own efforts at offering true hospitality by driving a wedge between her sister and herself and Jesus and herself. Martha breaks all the rules of hospitality, first by trying to embarrass her sister in front of their guest, and then by asking Jesus as their guest to get involved, to intervene in a family dispute. Listen to her words. Martha is so upset that she even goes so far as accusing her guest, accusing Jesus of not caring about her. And then, this is the, the part that really gets me, she proceeds to then order Jesus. Her final word to him in this passage is expressed as a command. Tell her to help me. Can we relate? Have you have, do you have some resentment in your life? Have you ever cried out to God, do you not care about me? Do you not see me here? Have we ever in our prayer life turned from praying requests to making commands? Smack them upside the head, Lord. Bring them down to their knees. Help them to see what they're not doing. Hell, tell them to help me. My friends, if we're not experiencing the presence of Christ in our lives, we are also likely to miss the presence of Jesus in those around us. How many of us are laboring for a religion rather than engaging in a relationship? How many of us are working and serving, and I'm not talking out there, I'm just talking right in here. How many of us are working and serving as a part of the body of Christ? Here at this church campus, at our school, how many of us are working and serving with a chip on our shoulder? Are we doing all kinds of stuff in the name of Jesus? That's what we throw around a lot. I'm doing it for Jesus. I'm doing it in the name of Jesus. Are we doing all kinds of stuff in the name of Jesus, but somehow missing, encountering the person of Jesus in what we are doing? My friends, to work, to serve in the name of Jesus sounds great. But to work and serve in the name of Jesus means that what we do, how we do it, points back to the one we're doing it for. Who we are representing in our doing. Christ. And I'm telling you, I don't care how good you are. 
how brilliant, how multitasking you are, how much experience you have under your belt. This can't happen if you can't see Jesus. If you aren't engaging the presence of Christ in what you are doing, if you can't see Jesus, if you do not engage the presence of Christ, then all that you are doing will burn you out. It will make you resentful. You will not be pointing to him. You will be pointing to yourself. You will be pointing to the chip, the burden on your shoulder. Again, I said this before, but it's no accident, I think, or mere coincidence that Luke places this encounter with Jesus right after the story of the Good Samaritan, which, if you recall, is a story told to illustrate the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. If we didn't have this encounter that Luke gives us right after that, it would be easy for us to take from that parable that the full end of the Christian life is generous service to others. But this encounter with Mary and Martha offers an important corrective. Yes, the true follower of Jesus ought to love and serve others, all persons, as one's neighbor. However, only when we consciously and fully engage the presence of Jesus in the whole of our lives can we, will we, be attentive to the person of Christ in others and thereby wholly encounter them as children of God too. So to sum up, what gets in the way of encountering Jesus in our lives? Three things, our distractions, our worries, and our resentments. But Martha hears, and we need to hear it, the only thing, the one thing needed for Martha is to receive the gracious presence of Jesus. That's it. And that this receiving the presence of Jesus, just one more time because I know it's so ingrained in these stereotypes, receiving the gracious presence of Jesus doesn't mean we passively sit or we're not active. If you look at this, this isn't Mary's posture at all. The counterpoint to a distracted, anxious, resentful Martha is a centered, present, peaceful Martha. And Jesus calls all of us, especially those of us who are worried, distracted, or resentful by many things, to do likewise, to live attentively, to live attentively. And living attentively is not as much about what we are doing as it is our awareness the Lord is with us in all that we do. Living attentively is observing, reflecting, and engaging carefully God's presence and purpose in, with, and under all our varied tasks, activities, and responses, be they in the kitchen or in the living room, at school or at play, whether we are at work or we find ourselves looking for work. When we live attentively to Christ in all circumstances, we will hear his words of grace and truth. We will know we are loved and valued as children of God. Our very being and our lives will become shaped around and out of his presence. And we will be renewed again and again in faith and renewed and strengthened again and again for service. This is what Christ means when he says, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. When we live attentively to Christ in all circumstances, not only will we experience Jesus, but through us, others will encounter him too. Beloved, more than, on more than one occasion, Jesus has told us that he goes before us. He promises that he'll be with us always. So I ask you this morning, have you seen him lately? Have you sensed his presence? Because we're invited 
not just today, every day of our lives, we're invited to engage the ongoing presence of God in Christ. We're invited to engage that ongoing presence of God in Christ by being fully present with Jesus in whatever posture we have taken. So this morning, as we continue, as we come to the table, I want to invite you. I want to invite us. Let us confront our distractions. Let us surrender our worries and our fears about many things. Let us release all the resentments we are carrying and be at peace with ourselves and with each other because Jesus is with us. Of the many things in this world, in our lives, Jesus is the only one who is needed. Christ is the one who is our everything. He is the one who will not be taken away from us. Amen.